As I was driving in the car this week, I was listening at one point to a radio phone-in. Now, some of those radio phone-ins deal with very uh, crucial issues. Uh, The validity of the war in Iraq, the peace process here in Northern Ireland, and the the recent political outcomes. Well, this one wasn't quite so, so crucial, the issue at stake. The subject was the Easter egg. People were ringing in to give their view on the meaning of the Easter egg. I just dipped into this phone in for a couple of minutes as I was making a short journey. It's a Christian symbol, one caller said. It helps us to remember the stone that was rolled away from Jesus' tomb. No sooner had that caller hung up than another listener phoned in to challenge this view vigorously. No, the Easter egg has absolutely nothing to do with Christianity or with Jesus Christ. The egg is a universal symbol of fertility, widespread throughout many cultures and many times. It helps us to celebrate the coming of new life and helps us to celebrate spring. I don't want to enter into the great Easter egg debate with you this evening, but I do want to think about a current trend in our culture illustrated by this radio phone-in. Christianity is under attack. Throughout Britain in 2007, there are lots of people who would like to see God, and especially the Christian God, pushed to, to the margins and perhaps out of public life altogether. We don't want God in our Christmas, so we start to talk about the the winter holiday. We don't want God in Easter, so we'll celebrate the coming of spring and of the earth's fertility. People want to push Jesus out of politics, out of our schools, and out of every sphere of public life. Christianity is under attack. And for those of us who know and love God, there's a sense in which we feel that God himself is under attack in the culture in which we live. I've become increasingly aware that as God is under attack in our society, and I've been watching to see how God's people respond to that, what kind of response does that draw from us? And there's one trend in particular that I think I'm noticing more and more. There are a growing number of people who want to look after God and who want to take care of him. When society at large begins to disown Christian festivals of Christmas and Easter, there are Christians all over the country who come out fighting, sticking up for God. If you're somebody who is, is online, you'll probably get emails from Christian friends or from Christian organizations asking you to sign up against this or against that for this and for that. And the underlying sense is that if you don't add your name to this circular email, the kingdom of God and God himself may may come to great harm and crumble because you aren't playing your part to support God. At a time when the church is clearly in decline throughout the UK, we end up not only feeling a little bit sorry for ourselves, but I wonder, is there a subtle sense 
in which we can find ourselves feeling sorry for God too. He's fallen on bad times. He's not as popular as he used to be. We need to be committed and loyal like never before so we can help our old friend through this bad patch. I think there's a growing temptation. I really do to think this way in secular Britain. A growing temptation to imagine ourselves looking after God or taking care of him somehow. Easter, the event that we celebrate here this evening, stands as a great testimony against those who would look after God. Easter says a huge no to that way of thinking. Easter represents what humanity doesn't have to do, can't do. Easter tells me that I don't have to take care of God because he can take care of himself. I don't have to watch over his body. I don't have to protect him from his enemies. I don't have to manage him, defend him, or tell him what needs to be done next. The empty tomb tells us that God can look after himself. And it frees us to go home and to go about our week's work doing the things that God has called us to do with a new confidence and a new trust that everything is all right in the world. As I said a moment ago, we read the second half of John chapter 20, but I actually want to focus in on a few verses which we read in our service this morning. Verses 1 to 8 of John 20 tell of a few people arriving at that empty tomb. (coughs) Excuse me. When Peter and John ran to that tomb, they were in a real hurry. And they ran and they were in a hurry for just the reason that we have been talking about here just now. They wanted to take care of God. They had heard from Mary that the tomb was empty. So they put two and two together and they assumed that the the tomb had either been plundered or had been desecrated. And they were going to take care of their friend Jesus in his hour of need. Grave robbing seems like a a weird notion to us, but it was common enough in these days. One of the most expensive commodities in the whole of the culture were the kind of expensive spices that were used to embalm a a body for death. A, A body would be wrapped in linen cloths with lots of these spices And and Jesus, remember, has been buried by a very rich man, Joseph of Arimathea. So for that reason alone, Jesus' corpse would have had a a very significant financial worth. So Peter and John are, are rushing to the tomb, half wondering if grave robbers have been at work here. Or the body could have been stolen out of malice. The same people who had crucified Jesus understood the level of support that Jesus had in the community. They'd maybe been aware in very vague terms of this notion that Jesus talked of reappearing 
from the dead. Perhaps grave robbers were at work here. These are the kind of lengths that people would go to to put an end to the Jesus movement once and for all. So Peter and John are rushing to the tomb, and this is what they have in mind. They're in love with Jesus. They're full of all the bravest and the best motives. They ran to the tomb a little like Starsky and Hutch. They wanted to apprehend the robbers or or catch the desecrators. And when they arrive, the tomb's empty. Just as Mary said it would be. It's not completely empty because the grave clothes are still there. John tells us that as well as the burial cloth that had been around Jesus' head, the head cloth was folded up by itself, separate from the linen. Peter saw it all first, and there's no comment here on his response. For John's part, we're told that he saw it and believed. John observed the evidence. He made some deductions. Maybe we should make John the patron saint of all detectives a short runner of Sherlock Holmes, of Hercule Poirot, because he he saw things there, he put two and two together, and he made some conclusions. He saw and believed. What did he believe? John believed, quite simply, that God was at work. He knew that this was neither the work of grave robbers nor tomb desecrators. If robbers had been on the scene, the grave wrappings would have been ripped from the body and would have been lying in a mess on the floor. Desecrators would have left nothing at all that have carried Jesus and his grave wrappings intact and removed the body. But here are the wrappings intact and the head clothes neatly folded. John came to this grave expecting to see something. And what he expected to see, he didn't see. He expected to see the outworkings of human sin. Instead, he saw evidence that God is at work. And what John had expected to do, he didn't do. He expected to come and to rescue the body, to preserve Jesus' dignity and death, to apprehend the robbers or the desecrators. But as it turned out, God had already taken care of himself. Friends, our God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of his people Israel, the God of the Christian church, is a God who takes care of himself. Isn't that what makes our God different than every other God, every other false God in this world? They all need human help. They're like limp puppets waiting for somebody to to pull the strings. They're nothing. In the second chapter of his prophecy, Habakkuk asks, of what value is an idol? since a man has carved it, or an image that teaches lies. For he who makes it trusts in his own creation. He makes idols that cannot speak, 
Woe to him who says to wood, come to life, or to lifeless stone, wake up. Cannot give guidance. It's covered with gold and silver. There is no breath in it. Friends, our God is not like these other false gods. He can take care of himself. I think that's a lesson that we must take on board this Easter time when we look into the empty tomb of Jesus Christ. A lot of us enter into this life with Christ with a whole lot of moral and religious baggage already in place. It's got nothing at all to do with the gospel. We, we quite easily find ourselves talking about working hard at our faith. We agonize over it. We struggle with it. We set our jaws and determine to struggle through. But I think the empty tomb here stands as a monument against all of this. We mustn't patronize God. We mustn't treat him as somebody who needs our help or our effort or us to take care of him. We need to give up thinking for once and for all that our efforts will determine God's success in this world. That kind of thinking is the position of a a pagan before their idol, not of a Christian before the risen Christ. What do we take away with us this evening? As we have worshipped the risen Lord and as we have gazed into his empty tomb, will we get it for once and for all that we can't look after God? Will our congregation and our denomination and the church worldwide, which is drumming up enthusiasm, which is talking a good talk, trying to get people interested in God once more, will we finally leave all that behind? Will we understand that God doesn't need our help? He never did. He never will. Will we, like Paul, when he preached on the Areopagus, recognize that God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth. He is not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. Friends, I hope that gazing into the empty tomb of Jesus this evening will free us. Free us for a new joy in our worship, a new freedom in our service. Perhaps this Easter, maybe for the first time, we learn to celebrate, not as those who are committed to helping God, but as those who see him as the God who stands above us, beyond us, needing not our help, but meriting our love, our devotion, and our service.
Let us pray. Father God, as we have followed in your footsteps this holy week, as we have walked with you towards the cross, as we've seen you die and be taken from the cross and placed in a tomb, Lord, at times we have felt as though we have wanted to help We have wanted to do what we can to care for you and assist you. Lord, open our eyes this evening to the reality of the Easter message. That even in what appeared to be weakness and death and defeat, our God was in complete control. While Christ was nailed to the cross, he was the sovereign God of the universe with legions of angels available at his disposal. Lord, take from us any notion that we need to support you or help you in any way. Help us instead, Lord, to look for the work that you're doing, the kingdom that you're building, And Lord, help us simply to come and join you, to walk alongside you, and to know the joy of serving you in your kingdom. Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name this evening. Thank you for your triumph this Easter time. And help us to walk in freedom and joy into the weeks and months ahead. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.